Now, last week we um, we saw that Jesus, um, when he was a baby, we saw his flight to and from Egypt, and we saw how his his early life was fulfilling the history of Israel. And so he was adopting the identity and mission of Israel into his life. And um, the Gospels, though, are interested not just in his, his infancy and definitely not in his childhood, but they're more interested in his ministry and what he accomplished uh, for us according to the Father's will. And so that's where we pick up today, about 30 years after um, the birth and infancy of Christ. So if you read with me, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Um, there's a, there's a, a latent frustration I have with the, with the texture and maybe the tone of our evangelical discourse. And I think John the Baptist helps straighten us out. And Jesus preeminently helps straighten us out. Um, John, in this passage, was preaching about the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he was talking with people whose hearts were not prepared for it in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he then defined how the kingdom would deal with those whose hearts are unprepared for the kingdom's arrival. Now, the, the frustration I have is that um, Christianity is becoming and has become slightly emasculated over the last number of years. Um, 
And I, I have this sense that we are losing our strength and sense of victory in the Lord. Even as the world crumbles down around us, we know that the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. And he holds the kings in derision. And so I see an emasculating um, fog resting over Christendom. I also see a, a romanticizing of, of Christianity so that the love of God, for example, is, is thought of more in romantic terms instead of a heartfelt devotion to God. Um, and I, what concerns me the most is I see the gospel stripped of the offense that it carries within itself. Um, and it's almost the goal in our evangelism and our, our cultural discourse is to not offend anyone. Now, I, there is a problem with people who want to be offensive. And all they want to do is be divisive. And all they want to do is show their strength and power. And those people have their own sets of problems. But today I want to address maybe the, the weakness of Christianity and and give it good food because God reigns Christ is risen and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire so I have four goals for this sermon today number one I want to give you an angle on what it means to be a man of God two I want you to understand what the kingdom of God means. That sometimes that's, that's an ambiguous phrase. Number three, I want you to understand the heart of a person unprepared for the kingdom of God. And finally, um, how God, through Christ, will deal with the unprepared and the prepared heart. Um, but the passage starts with John the Baptist and I think John the Baptist demonstrates what it means to be a godly man and woman. In those days, we read that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew's, Matthew's purpose is to situate John the Baptist within the context of Christ's ministry. Now, we don't know a lot about John the Baptist, but we do know that he had a massive following in the first century. So that even secular Jewish historians were writing about him. Um, you can read about him in Josephus. He, was, he had a massive following. Thousands upon thousands were relocating their center of devotion from the temple to out in the wilderness where this, this redneck was preaching the gospel or the gospel of the kingdom. So we know he had a very massive following. Um, and we know that he was preaching that something was about to happen in Israel. Something is about to occur. There is a wind is blowing. The kingdom is coming. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what I, what I see most compelling about John the Baptist is that Jesus admired him. Jesus said that John was a, a bright and shining light. 
And actually, he said that among those born among women, which would be everyone, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. He does go on to say that those in the kingdom are even greater than he. And I think that means since we have the Holy Spirit, or if he's talking about a future kingdom, because they're in the fullness of God's realized rule and reign, they, they have a greater experience of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist was the greatest prophet ever to live according to Christ. And Christ admired him. So I, I, I see John the Baptist and I see a good, a good representation of what it means to be a man of God. Um, notice that John the Baptist's ministry was a confrontation against the malaise that kind of rested over Israel at that time. Um, he condemned the sinful marriage of Herod Antipas, and that's actually what got him beheaded. Um, his ministry took place in the, the, the wilderness because he was kicking against the politicized ministry of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he went out to the desert. Um, one common, D.A. Carson, in his commentary, said this about John the Baptist. He said, about it, the way he dressed. He wore a leather belt of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And so D.A. Carson says, John's austere garb, that means his simplicity in, in dress, and diet confirmed their message, confirmed his message, and condemned the idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. Even the food and dress that John preached, or even the food and dress of John preached. So it's spiritual and physical softness that John the Baptist was confronting in his ministry. So here's a man who saw spiritual weakness, hypocrisy in Jerusalem, and he aimed for a ministry of genuine holiness, and he knew he was standing on the threshold of the arrival of God's kingdom. So that's, that's a little sketch of who John the Baptist was. Um, but we know that he was not just any man. We know that he was a man appointed. And the prophets tell us about John the Baptist. We read in verse 3 that Isaiah spoke about him. He is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That's in Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's a, it's a very interesting passage. It's about a voice in the wilderness and the valleys are lifted up and the mountains are brought down. So there's almost this vision of God flattening out the earth so that every eye has a clear sight on the return of God to Israel. Make straight the way of the Lord. So... What is very interesting, look what it says in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now the fact that Matthew applies this to Christ shows us, is another example of Christ's divinity. See, we don't, we don't just believe that Jesus is God because 
the word God is applied to Jesus. There is that in the New Testament, but it's deeper than that. Matthew is taking a passage that originally referred to the return of Yahweh to Israel and saying that's, that's Jesus. So you see what I'm saying? It's, it's more than just where does the New Testament say that Jesus is God? It is the application of divinity to Christ all over the scripture. This passage, which in the Hebrew does say prepare the way for Yahweh, is now applied to Jesus. He is God in the flesh. So John consciously stood at the threshold of the return of God to Israel. That is, that is a profound ministry. And he was a zealot and he had his mind fixed like flint on true devotion and repentance to God, which he did not see in Jerusalem or in the temple. We know he hated hypocrisy. So this is the kind of man who Jesus calls no one greater than. He is, he is the greatest of all the prophets. Um, so what, what can we say, how could we exemplify the thing that Jesus admired in John the Baptist? I think we can summarize John the Baptist's ministry with one phrase. Faithful, not careful. Faithful, not careful. He was beheaded. He didn't mind calling out kings. He was very bold with his words. He was faithful, not careful. He confronted spiritual softness, and he even condemned powerful leaders. But he did that in full devotion to God. He didn't do that just because he liked being spicy. He did it in full devotion to God. You understand the difference? There's a difference between just like just liking a little debate and calling out kings so that they behead you in full devotion to God. You see the difference, right? One is one is is sinful and comes from a heart that does not prepare Christ's room. One comes from a, a zealous hunger to see Christ glorified. You see that, right? So John was faithful, not careful. One of the phrases which I've memorized um, by a pastor um, who's, who called out the carefulness of evangelicals. Um, I'll, be, I'll just tell you the phrase, but he said, this is just such a great sentence. He said, desperate time call for faithful men not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. <laughs> you see, isn't that a great, I want to like eat that. <laughs> faithful men, not careful men. That is what we need today. And I, I, I perhaps even with myself, perhaps I, have been too careful sometimes in, in the way I speak. And I think that um, our carefulness tends to verge on unfaithfulness. 
in the way we speak the gospel. Now, listen, people have different personalities and different dispositions. So in saying this, I'm not suggesting that you adopt some kind of fiery disposition that, that's you know, frowning and, and your eyes are, are blazing. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Some, some of you are, are laid back. Some of you are introverts. Some of you are extroverts. So it, your, your faithfulness, not carefulness, is going to come out of you in different ways. But it will manifest itself in a true zeal for the Lord and fear of God, not fear of man. Fear of God, not fear of man. That's really what this is about. So, I wonder, how have you and I been more careful than faithful in our lives? I know, I know I've been more careful than faithful in, in multiple things in my life before. And I hope to straighten those things out. We, I know we talk about George Mueller a lot in this church, but... There is a man who was more faithful than careful. He had a ministry of, of um, orphanages. Thank you, right. Orphanages, and he, he built up these orphanages, but he did it with no money at all. Just prayer. Just prayer. And listening to his biography, I learned that he inverted the tithe principle so that he actually gave 90% of his money and kept 10% for himself. That's a man that the Lord uses. That's a man who was faithful and not careful. Don't be too careful. Be more faithful and let the Lord sort out what happens after that. So that's what a man of God looks like. He trusts the Lord. He is more faithful than careful. Um, good. So let's be that. Next. John the Baptist preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom of heaven? Um, first, just terminologically, a kingdom is a territory. Right? It, it's, a, it's a realm and a king ru- rules that realm. So you could think then of the kingdom of God as the realm of God's rule and reign. But Matthew says, the, or John says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this has confused people to think that it exists in heaven. That is not the point. The point of saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand is to say is to not say that it only exists in heaven, but to say that it is coming from heaven down to earth. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near, is the sense. It's descending. It is arriving. And John the Baptist consciously was standing at the threshold of the arrival of the kingdom of God. He was announcing that the realm of God's rule and reign is descending upon the earth. And for us to get on board with that. Um, and we know finally that the kingdom did arrive with Jesus' ministry. Jesus said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. 
So while John was announcing the arrival of the kingdom, Jesus brought the kingdom. It has arrived. And so when you, when you look at the healings of Jesus that he performed, the, many healings throughout the gospel, we'll get into some of those in Matthew, but what they demonstrated is what the kingdom is like when God's rule and reign comes upon a person. And his teaching demonstrate the character of God's rule and reign. So here's what you're thinking now. You're thinking if his healings demonstrated what it's like when the kingdom comes upon someone, and his teaching demonstrates the nature of that kingdom, why don't we see God ruling and reigning now with that exactness and power? If Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, then where is it? Where is the kingdom of God if he, if he brought it and it's arrived on earth? Why is the character of that kingdom not consuming the earth as we speak? Here's a phrase you need to memorize if you have not already. Already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Who, who has heard that phrase before and knows where I'm going? Already and not yet. A few of you. To say that the kingdom is already here is to say that it has arrived. It has been inaugurated. It has begun. But to say not yet is to say that it has not been fully consummated. It hasn't reached its final and decisive form as it will in the future when Christ returns. Um, oh, so Jesus, Jesus talked about how the kingdom was going to come. It was going to infiltrate and take a spiritual form before it takes a final decisive physical form upon the earth. Here's a very interesting phrase or passage from Luke 17, 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the kingdom comes through the proclamation of the gospel, which people receive with the empty hands of faith and repentance. And then upon that faith, and in virtue of that faith, the Lord implants the Holy Spirit in the heart of his people. And the kingdom grows as more and more people come to a saving obedient knowledge of Jesus Christ. Another example Jesus gave an image is a mustard seed. In order for that seed to grow in a tree, what do you need to do? Plant it. That's what Jesus did. He planted the kingdom of God when he came. His life exemplified it and brought the kingdom. His death secured the entry of, of sinners into that kingdom. And his resurrection is the demonstration and proof of his power. He brought the kingdom of God and he planted it and it will grow. And it will grow. 
and it is growing. Christianity started with 12 people, and now there's more than that. So that's growth. <laughs> so the kingdom of heaven, think of it as the kingdom of heaven is here in spiritual form. Um, and it's growing, and it will take a fully realized physical form at the coming of Christ. So he, the doctrine that I'm talking about, the theological term is called inaugurated eschatology. Um, inaugurated eschatology is just a way of saying that the future has begun. George Eldon Ladd has a, a great book on the kingdom of God called The Presence of the Future. That is what the kingdom of God is right here among us in you through the power of the Holy Spirit is the presence of the future given to you. So there's an already not yet aspect there, right? We are raised with Christ right now. Are we not? Seated in heavenly places. But at the same time, we will be raised. Just like he was raised. God has given us Life through his spirit in our inner being. One day he will give life to our mortal bodies. So the kingdom is here. It has been inaugurated, but it has not been fully actualized like it will be at the coming of Jesus Christ. So the gospel of the kingdom, to put a bow on it, is the, the realm of God's rule and reign. It has begun in Jesus Christ and it is encroaching upon the darkness of a corrupt world and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And it is good news. But there are some people in, the, in John the Baptist's day and in our day who are not prepared for the coming of, of the kingdom. So in verses 7 through 10, we kind of get a glimpse of people who are not prepared for the coming of the kingdom. Also gives us kind of a taste of the conflict John the Baptist endured. But when, many, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So it seems like the Pharisees and Sadducees came to sort of scope out the ministry of John the Baptist. What is he doing out in the wilderness and why is everyone flocking to him? The Pharisees and the Sadducees made up what is called the Sanhedrin, kind of the authoritative body of Israel. And so it seems like the Sanhedrin sent some Jew or Pharisees and Sadducees out in the wilderness not only to scope out to prob but probably to condemn and confront John for his ministry, just like they did with Jesus. As you know, the Pharisees were hypocrites. They neglected the weightier matters of the law. And, and see, as you know, someone can do something that looks very, very godly. But they do it, or they are driven by a motivation that is very, very ungodly. Right? We've seen this before. They're doing things that were very, very godly. Tithing, mint, dill, and cumin. Praying in the marketplace so that everyone can see them. Wearing the long robes and, and making thy, their phylacteries long at the bottom. 
These things represented holiness. And they actually gained the Pharisees' social credibility and status in Israel. So their motivation was not true holiness and godliness. Their motivation was social status and power. That's their problem. And John the Baptist, therefore, calls them a brood of vipers, which is just a batch of young snakes. I wonder what he's suggesting their origins are by that image. So they, these, are, these are a people who turn godliness into a means of gain. They're a brood of vipers. They are sons of the snake. And he tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That means a turning to God with all of your heart. Not just your rituals and your, your, your outward actions. This is what Jesus was, was after in the Sermon on the Mount. He is after the heart. This is why Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? It means your righteousness must go beyond. Not just the external, but go beyond the external into the heart. Your righteousness must go beyond the mere formality and enter the heart. So John, John um, the Baptist did something that I think many preachers have done for you and me. They've confronted our false security. And John the Baptist confronted the false security of the um, Pharisees and Sadducees. What was their false security? They believed that their Jewishness is what saved them. They believed that because they were descendants of Abraham biologically, they were therefore de facto sons of God, part of God's covenant people. And so John confronts that head on, and he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is the exact problem that Paul is addressing in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. He is, he is addressing their false security, the Jewish false security, that their biological descendant from Abraham is what gains them an audience with God. It does not. It is the fruit of their life. Because the fruit of their life is evidence of their faith and devotion to God. So false security. The Jewish false security was their Jewishness. And there are people, perhaps even sitting here today, who have other false securities. It is... It is Good to be baptized. But do not take security in your baptism. 
It is good to be led in the sinner's prayer, but do not take security in the sinner's prayer. Do not take security in a decision. It is the, it is the fruit of your life, the Christ-likeness that flows through you, which will indicate whether you were connected to Christ, i.e. the vine, in the first place. So the fruit reveals the root, right? It reveals the root. So we're not talking works salvation. We're saying that what God requires from Christians, he provided to Christians. He requires holiness, so he gave us what kind of spirit? Why, he gave us a holy spirit. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 16 through 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You will sin. And when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. But if that's all, if that's the only fruit that comes out of you. I had an apple tree. I owned a house in Wordsville one time. We had an apple tree. Sometimes it produced good apples. Sometimes it produced bad apples, but by and large, it produced good apples. That's how I knew it was a healthy tree. But if it only produced rottenness, brown apples, it would be evidence that the tree was not healthy, right? Same thing with a Christian. The gospel is about much more. It is not less than forgiveness, but it is about much more. More than forgiveness. He provides to us what he requires from us. The Shema is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has given you the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. Who produces fruit in us. So the good news of the kingdom is not that God has relaxed his standards and he's like a sleepy grandfather now that wants us rascals to kind of get in shape. The good news is that he supplies to you the power to live a holy and devout life fully integrated under his will, for his glory, under his authority. He's given you that. He's given me that. Go therefore and make disciples. That's, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the, um, the, just the weakness of our, of our discourse. Again, not work salvation. If, if you think pastor up there is preaching that you... you you add to your salvation by works, or you gain salvation by works, then you have fundamentally misunderstood me. You know, leather, 
Any time a preacher, it seems, in evangelical circles gets up and talks about holiness, people get nervous. Leonard Ravenhill said, we have evangelicals today that are more afraid of holiness than they are of sinfulness. So, we are talking about a, a, um, a power that is within you to live a self-denying, worshipful, obedient life for God's glory. Now, that's about the unprepared heart. What then will the king do when he comes? John the Baptist says, I will baptize you, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals are I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Oh my goodness, do we hear people talk like that today? That is... Um, there was a group of men who I was sharing the gospel with last week with another brother who I love very much who is a holy man. But the, the gospel that was shared by some of the others was basically, listen, and because of Jesus, now I have peace and joy in my heart, and I have hope, and uh, I feel the sense of his love and presence. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. I, I, and honestly, we're talking about spiritual formation. We're talking about even the feelings. I'm talking about feelings in Bible study. Holy feelings. But that is not the call for the unregenerate man. It's not, it's not just an offer that, for you to have peace and love in your heart. Look at what John the Baptist says. Look at what Jesus says it is amazing how if you just look at the texts in the Bible, it doesn't, just, it doesn't talk about things the way we are programmed to think in evangelical circles sometimes. John the Baptist says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Goodness gracious So, what will Christ do with men? He will give them the fire of the Holy Spirit and the fire that um, purifies. But the same fire that purifies is the fire that will destroy the one who does not have the Holy Spirit. You follow me? If you don't have the life of God in you, then the fire, the purifying fire, will utterly consume you. 
And so to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is to be immersed in the life of God. To be immersed in the life of God. This is what the prophet Joel talked about in Joel 2. There would be a day of the Lord when he would pour out his spirit on all people. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happened. And Jesus, uh, Peter said, God raised Jesus up. And of that we are all witnesses. And being exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out this spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus ascending to the right hand of God. Received the authority to pour out the new covenant promise. Prophesied in the Old Testament. And now... Those who trust in Christ are given. The life of God is imparted to us through the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have that, the fire that purifies will be the fire that consumes. Now that's a way to talk about the importance and urgency of the gospel. So after my, my good brother talked about how he, he is glad now that he received Jesus Christ because he has peace and joy in his heart, I felt a holy unction to get up and say, and also too, if I might add, if, if you're not a Christian and you have not received Jesus Christ, then the wrath of God abides on you. And you must repent and believe. And God loves you. And he has made a way for you to come in fullness of fellowship with him so that you truly can have peace and joy. But if you do not, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Needless to say, it got very uncomfortable after that. (laughs) But I, I felt it was a necessary adjustment to the gospel that was being preached. So, and, and you know what? Different people have different gifts too. But it is inadequate to present a gospel of just felt feelings. We're talking about eternity here. So, if, so you have the Holy Spirit within you if you're a Christian. Now, some of you are, are, are thinking, or maybe in the back of your minds, as well, I don't feel like I have the divine life in you. Well, there's a problem that we're talking about in Bible study. The reason you don't feel like that, number one, don't trust your feelings, right? It's the idolatry of believing that your feelings are always true, veridical, or that your feelings must be satiated and satisfied. Those are the, true, the two errors of the modern mind. That feel, we, we lead by feelings. So don't trust them. But second of all, we do want holy affections. And so we're, we're talking about these things in Bible study. Um, but theologically speaking... If you have the life of God in you, the reason you may not have the thoughts 
the feelings, the, the decisions, the disposition of the divine life in you is because life grows. And in order for us to be fully brought into cooperation with God's holiness and power in us, we need to, we need to feed it. We need to water it. Did you know that we had a garden outside of our window, you know, in our living room? I bet you they didn't because they're all dead. You know why they're all dead? Because they did not get the proper nutrition and water and food. Right, Stuart? You need to feed a plant in order for it to grow. If something is living, it needs to grow. So if we, if we constantly grieve the Holy Spirit, it's not that we weaken Him in us. It's just that we sear our own hearts. All right. Um, so that's, that's, that is, I think, I think John the Baptist gives us a great adjustment in, in our, in our discourse. He's bold. He's bold. Now, clearly these, there are some men who you need to be gentle with because they have a guilty conscience anyhow. And they're coming to you, and they do need the forgiveness and the grace of Christ. Some men and women need a, a hard word. They need to be woken up. Awake, O oh sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. I think, I think perhaps in this age, we need more John the Baptist-like people. Um, now, Nidia said I, I, I read you this poem before, but I'm just going to read it again. Just going to read it again. This is Little Gidding, stanza four from. Um, I'll get you the name later, but it it is a poem about the Holy Spirit descending and being consumed with the fire of the Holy Spirit or the fire of judgment. There's something about poetry that takes truth and, and lights it on fire. Nidia got me a little book of Robert Frost poems I just read before bed. Poetry lights a fire underneath truth. But here's one of those, those little fiery truths kind of embodied in this poem. The poet writes, The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. Who then devised this torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove this intolerable shirt of flame, which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. You see that? Consumed by the fire of the Holy Spirit? are consumed by the fire of judgment. Those are the only two options in the Christian life. There is no straddling fences here. 
Let us be a church who is consumed. Be a man. Be a woman who is consumed by fire. The fire of divine life within you. And be faithful more than you're careful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for holy men that you've, wrote, that you've raised up in the past. And we know that they have not done these things by their own accord, but only through your enablement, Lord. It's because they've emptied themselves. And they've been emptied. And they have the life of God implanted into them, Lord. As we look to Jesus, I ask that he would be magnified and we would be like a John who wants to see Christ increase and us decrease. And may we do this by the fire of the Holy Spirit in us. Save us from a carefulness that verges on unfaithfulness, Lord. And save us unto a holy, happy, bold faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and power and majesty and dominion, now, before all time, and forevermore. Amen. If anyone likes special prayer, I'd love to pray with you. God bless you.